Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, in today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to a woman in the middle who reimagined her life after adversity and grief when her husband died just before her 50th birthday. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle, with over a million downloads and counting. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor, and I'm so glad to be here with you again. But just quick, before we dive into this episode and you meet my amazing guest, I wanted to make sure that you heard about the exciting new thing, the news. And it is big news. I'll soon be launching a second podcast, essentially a sister podcast to the Women in the Middle show that you're listening to now. The name of the sister podcast is The Real Women in the Middle. It's basically two cool parts of my business. They're getting married and they're having a baby. (laughs) Yes, at our ripe old age. So if you're a midlife woman 50 plus, who's an entrepreneur or business owner, this new podcast is especially for you. And like I said, it's called The Real Women in the Middle. The new podcast will be focused on what's really going on in midlife as an entrepreneur while you're in it, dealing with the classic midlife-related obstacles and challenges, things like taking care of your aging parents, empty nest, menopause, lack of self-care, and lack of work-life balance, that sort of stuff. So we'll be focusing on what the experience is really like to be over 50 and running a business. The Real Women in the Middle podcast is a show built for midlife women over 50 who are six-figure-plus entrepreneurs looking to start loving their lives again. The goals are to discuss the real challenges midlife entrepreneurs like this face, especially when trying to follow their entrepreneurial dream when they've lost track of who they are and what they want because they haven't checked in with their actual dreams in decades, or they're so busy dealing with midlife issues that they feel like they've lost control of focusing on their priorities. Sounds good, right? So if you're interested in learning more about how to be a guest on this new show, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. Okay, let me introduce you to my amazing guest today. Debbie Weiss is a former attorney who earned her Master of Fine Arts in Creative Nonfiction Writing from St. Mary's College of California in 2020. A native of the California Bay Area, she turned to writing after George, her husband and partner of more than three decades, died of cancer in April 2013, and she found herself single and living alone for the first time in her life. Her essays have been published in the New York Times Modern Love column, Huff Post, and Women's Day, among other publications. Her award-winning blog, The Hungover Widowed, dispenses empathy and advice on grief and dating after loss. And her first book, Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, was released in September 2022. Kirkus Reviews describes the book as a deeply personal story, but one that Weiss shares with a beguiling openness and wit, a sharply written heartfelt dating account that proves both enriching and amusing. You know, I have to say that during the interview, I was taken back to my 20s and early 30s when I was dating. (laughs) And for sure, things were hard then. 
but things have changed and it's not easy. Dating as a midlife woman can be quite challenging, let alone when you've recently been widowed. So without further delay, I know you're going to love this interview. So please enjoy. Hi, Debbie. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Hi, Susie. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am so happy to have you. I love talking to women who have worked hard to create a new life in any situation. And for you, dealing with loss, it certainly adds another wrinkle. (laughs) That's for sure. But in the end, your story is really about reimagining your life during adversity and grief and how you found the courage and passion to do so. So I'm sure there's a story here, and that's what we're going to dive into. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and what was going on in your 40s, and then we'll just take it from there. Okay. Well, um, let's see. Um, I'm a former attorney, and I live in a suburb of Northern California, and I quit practicing law when I was 40 and basically bet my life we're hanging out with my husband. I married my high school sweetheart. Oh. And uh, we were together for 32 years. And I, you know, after I retired from law, I always thought I'd go back, but I didn't. I gardened and I exercised. And my husband was very high energy, but uh, he died uh, four months before my 50th birthday. Mm. And then everything just kind of changed. And did you know that he was ill? I did. It was very difficult. He was diagnosed four years before he, he passed on April 10th, 2013. He was diagnosed four years before that with uh, metastasized male breast cancer. Mm. Um, he was a workaholic. He was actually the tech lead on a product called Quicken for Windows, uh, which was a financial planning software thing. And he didn't get checked out until after the product shipped, at which point he discovered it was pretty far along. So we had about three and a half good years. And then, you know, the last maybe eight months were were bad, but he lived with it very, very courageously. Wow. That is difficult. I'm so sorry. It was, it was hard. Yeah. (laughs) There's no (laughs) sugarcoating how hard it must have been. So, you know, when um, turning 50, there's a lot going on with turning 50 anyway. And I, you know, this is just a giant amount of other stuff. So how did you notice that turning 50 was related to how you were moving through everything that was now on your plate? Well, I certainly wasn't very happy about that because my husband had passed four months before and I was still really out of it. Um, I was doing a lot of paperwork by then. I had a lot, most of it done. Uh, I was looking kind of at my life and saying, well, what now? But I was still pretty much in shock. So when I turned 50, I was I was still pretty much in shock. It probably wasn't until maybe a year after the loss that I could start trying to think about what I wanted to do. And how were you able to first actually start thinking a little bit about that? Like what about the grief or the timing of it or maybe something you experienced helped open you up just a little bit to start to even connect with that? Well, my husband and I had been very isolated. We were both antisocial. We're both introverts. Um, again, he was kind of an engineer's engineer. He was happiest working on a stereo system. I'm a bookworm. I was happy, you know, reading a book. Um, but what struck me is that I was very lonely. I could go days on end, you know, without seeing anybody aside from my, my dad and my stepmom. So I had to figure out how to leave the house and start 
doing things and making some kinds of connections or my life was going to be pretty difficult. So I started to join groups and uh, grief therapy helped a lot. Oh, yeah. Very helpful. Now, you said you were a bookworm. And then, of course, you ended up writing. (laughs) So how did you make that connection that, you know, maybe maybe writing would be an entree into that deep connection you were looking for, for something that really got you excited? Well, uh, I was an English major in college, and uh, then I went on to law school because I wanted something that was employable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't follow that passion. But uh, after I retired, I was taking for a few years a weekly class at a, a local retiree center for writing, a creative writing class. The teacher was amazing. And um, when my husband got ill, I dropped out of that class. But eight months or so after he passed, I, I enrolled again and started to go. And then uh, from there, there were a few people in the class who reached out to me and they had their own writing group. They were writing books. They were so welcoming and they invited me to do that. And it sounds so minor, but then I had, you know, two groups a week and I could submit writing and I could talk to people. And that made a huge difference to me. It was oh, a connection, yeah. a huge connection. Yeah. And you know, and it's not minor. First of all, I don't want to lose what you said that you were an English major. So, you know, something that comes up all the time in my community is, uh, I don't know what my passion is. I just don't know what my passion is. And, you know, people are self-conscious about not knowing what their passion is because it seems like, of course, I should know what I'm passionate about. But there's a disconnect for a variety of reasons. And I always say that you're likely on the right path. There are clues everywhere. But because you're at a different age and stage, you're not really appreciating the clues. So usually there is something to be learned by what you've always been attracted to, what you've always been intrigued by, what you would always do in your spare time. And it looks like a giant clue was what were you originally attracted to in university? And I'm sure that you were attracted to English and reading and all that stuff, even in grade school. Am I right? You're right. You're right. I love to read in grade school. That was my favorite thing to do. I would Miss, I wouldn't miss classes, but you know, my parents would have to say, Hey, you've got to get your homework done. You can't just read all the time. That's, that's what I like to do was read and to write little stories and, you know, take writing classes in school. So that, that was my passion. And then I just put it aside and then law school basically killed all my passions. But uh, <laughs> when I retired, it got better. I made a joke that in grad school, I stopped reading all fiction, except it was, wasn't a joke. It was true. Like it just stopped. And then I started lending books away and I'd never see them again. (laughs) And I just Mm -hmm. lost track of that connection at all. So there it was. It was a passion that you always had and you leaned into it a little bit, almost as soon as you could, like as soon as you had that space in your own uh, grief process to just think a little bit about talking to people and focusing on yourself, you know? You're right. You're right. I was... um. When I was trying to get connection after my husband died, I joined a bunch of different things and they were pretty random. He had a sports car. I joined a car club, which was crazy. I am a terrible driver. I tried a track day. I flunked. I, I never get car sick, but I actually thought I was that time. But I did have, but they had Saturday breakfast. So then I had on a Saturday morning people to go have breakfast with. I joined Rotary. Um, I didn't have any business. But once a week, I would have a dinner out with people and I had to put on like, you know, real pants, right? Not sweatpants. Yeah. And talk to people and practice. And, you know, some folks there were nice. 
I joined a synagogue um, again for connection and there was a book club and a red tent group. Yep. And uh, one of the women had an aunt who was a journalist and she worked sometimes with people privately and she started to work with me with writing. And that made a huge difference. And that made me get back into the writing class, which led to the group, which led to doing more stuff with that. You know, I'm in awe right now because you had to say yes to doing something new. And a lot of people stop right there. They don't want to try anything alone. And it's too scary to say yes. It's like it's new and new is scary, even though new is probably what you need because you're looking for connection. You're looking to get out a little bit again. So did you have any challenge saying yes? Extreme, extreme challenges. Um, I'm better these days, which is a relief, but I've had anxiety for a very long time. Um, and I'm super cautious. My mom died when I was 10. My dad was overprotective and I'm an only child. So I was raised to be very safe and take a safe route and don't talk to strangers and <laughs> don't draw attention to yourself, right? So Absolutely. it was really hard. And uh, I was never terribly social. You know, in law school, I didn't join a lot of groups. I just like my goal was get through it. That was about <laughs> it. So it was hard for me to reach out and try to do new things. And a lot of them didn't resonate. It was like, okay, I can get off the couch. I can go to a set place. I can interact with people. I can seem normal instead of in a lot of pain, which I was. But writing resonated. I could talk about my grief and listening to other people's writing and giving feedback felt meaningful to me. I felt like I was at least being useful in some way. So that for me was neat because it wasn't just an exercise in moving forward. It was something I genuinely enjoyed. And that made a huge difference. That's amazing. And what was it like for you to get feedback on something you've written? Because you probably haven't done that sort of thing in a long time. You know, it was fine because the writing class I took, we, you know, retired folk who were very kind. And most of them weren't trying to write anything for publication. And then the group that I was with, again, we were all very kind to each other. We, we had fun. Occasionally, we'd get a little frustrated with each other's writing, but we were all friends. Things didn't start to feel more difficult that way until I submitted to publications. And then when I got my MFA class and you get critiqued for two hours by a bunch of millennials and they are not terribly tactful, that's a different experience. <laughs> so what was it like to go back to school? Oh, that was a challenge. Um, again, I'm very cautious. So I basically dithered until the last minute and they were like, please make up your mind. There's people on the waiting list. Um, it's funny, I think of myself as a rational person, but since my husband died, I started to look for signs. And when I was trying to decide whether or not to do the MFA program, which was two years, uh, only, you know, about 45 minutes from my house at a beautiful campus, St. Mary's uh, College of California, which is a gorgeous place. Um, I actually did get a, a yes to the New York Times Modern Love column. And that to me was my sign that I should go forward. That's quite a sign. And, you know, the irony is that you're the second guest I've had who has had a modern love piece as a goal. And um, it, it changed her life. That was episode 240. And I'll, of course, link to that in the show notes, too. And I want to have your modern love piece in there, too. And it's so interesting that both of you, midlife writers who allowed yourself the permission to pursue passion, had that. Would you say that that is one of the hardest goals that you've ever set for yourself? You know, I was fortunate because 
I didn't go into that with a high expectation. I expected to get rejected. Um, if I didn't get it, I was exactly where I was, right? I mean, that's helpful for me as a writer when I think about rejection, which is if someone says no, you are exactly where you are. You have lost nothing. But promoting this book and trying to get it out into the world has been extraordinarily hard for me and painful sometimes that I've been upset and I've lost sleep. Oh my uh, gosh. Writing it, I could, writing it, I could do even, you know, when I had a pretty tough editor, a professional writer, a, an esteemed writer. In fact, she's amazing. And, you know, it was, I mean, putting it out there was harder than when I did a big revision for her. And she said, this is very nice, but I think you missed the point. <laughs> that, that I could cope with. <laughs> Debbie, I think you're taking this all in stride. I just want to back up just a little bit. Like, first of all, going back to school in midlife is not for the faint of heart. So tell me a little bit about like, what is an MFA? And tell me a little bit about why you were excited to do that in the first place. Well, an MFA is a master of fine arts and it, you could get it for dance and other, other things too, or visual arts. I got mine in writing. My school had three branches of writing, poetry, fiction, and uh, creative nonfiction, which was me. I don't write fiction. Again, I'm an ex-lawyer. I have little imagination. Everything I write about happened. I don't have that good of an imagination. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to school because I had a lot of free time. And I also wanted to make my writing better. And I loved my undergrad years. I went to Mills College in Oakland, which is no more, but it was a small, very beautiful campus. And I thought it would be really good for me to do something immersive and difficult and honestly, if it didn't work again, I was prepared to drop out. I wouldn't be any place worse. It wasn't like when I was in law school and I knew I had to move out of my dad's house and make a living. <laughs> you know, this was, you know, this was supposed to be for, for fun and self-improvement. And I also just, I didn't think my writing was there. I mean, I, I grew up writing as a lawyer and I'd had a few writing classes, but the kinds of things you think about are really different in, a, in, a, in an MFA and the way you analyze books and writers. So I thought it would be cool. And I, and I liked it. It was really, it was great. Um, That's was amazing. Fun. So yeah, it, it sounds like you're a trick, like you're not put off by the discipline that it takes to accomplish a goal like that or law school, you know, because a lot of writers wouldn't choose that option. They would, you know, work with professionals and editors and join these groups. And you did that too, but you, you know, you went all in. I did go all in. I did. I, you know, like I said, I think I just had a fair amount of time on my hands, retired again at 40. And I thought it would be good to have an immersive, challenging experience and be with a different group of people and get different viewpoints. You know, again, I'm living in my little suburban town and in a university, well, college, you get different people and different ideas and encouragement. And, you know, I was also prepared, honestly, if the book didn't go anywhere and I couldn't work with it again, you're no, you're no worse off if you abandon something. So yeah. to me, that was kind of, I've just seen you know, a worst case, you've trashed the tuition for a semester. Best case, you finish it. I love your mindset. Now tell me more about mm. this book. When did you decide to just, you know, focus on a book instead of focusing on these articles and submitting articles, which you've all also had some success with? A little bit. Um, I was writing pieces, little things, and not everything is an article. I mean, just vignettes and things. And I think I liked the challenge of putting it all together and seeing what happened. 
It's interesting because like many writers, I think a lot of us do this and I've taught writing and I've read books on writing. You know, you start with little vignettes of your life and then you try to put them together. Um, I used a book called Shimmering Images and it's super helpful about putting, you know, writing little things and then putting them together and seeing what themes and what, what, what comes together. You know, for me, organizing the book, all the different pieces of it were very hard. So I started with also wanting to sort of express what I'd been through and then ultimately trying to see if it was good enough to be worth sharing. And what helped you determine that? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, I wondered hubris, if you looked for a sign. Hubris. Um, I did look, <laughs> you know, hubris. I did look for a sign. And one of the signs, um, I was a Huffington Post blogger and they had that free platform and getting feedback and interacting with people. I enjoyed that part of it. Again, um, getting in modern love was a big sign for me because it meant that, okay, that was like 1200 words or 1400 words, but I, and if I could only make that another, you know, 300 pages, it would work. <laughs> but but I, I guess I wanted to see what I could do and what I could put together. And if I could make something good of all this, it was, I think I liked the challenge. I think you do like the challenge. Yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes we lose perspective about what we're accomplishing and, and the uh, level of our goal setting and stuff like that. And you, you know, you've been through a lot and then you didn't take an easy path. You really dove in with going back to school, setting high goals for your writing, not just writing, but getting them published and then a book. So tell us a little bit about the book. Well, I kind of joke that I wrote the book in part to um, alert women to the poor quality of most middle-aged men these days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. I hadn't dated since I was 17. And when I started dating at 50, I started to date about 14 months after my husband passed. Specifically, I went on J-date. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was really shocked by how awful it was. Uh, not J-date per se, but men in general seem to have declined over the years. Let's put it that way. And then I was writing the dating stories for that. And I really felt women should be warned. I was blogging about it too. My early blog posts are terrible because I couldn't really write coherent things. But I was started to just say, someone's got to be talking about this because this sucks and it sucks for women, particularly. Debbie, and I'm having a flashback. I'm having a flashback. I met my husband me. um, through a personal ad in the Jewish community newspaper, mm -hmm. but a personal ad, this was before J-Date. So J-Date, if you don't know, is like a Jewish dating, online dating site. And, and it wasn't around when I met my husband. So we wrote letters and before, right before that happened, I had told, I told everybody I knew that I was single and interested in meeting people because I was 30. Anyway, one of my blind dates was book worthy for sure. <laughs> like it would have been in a collection. I showed up um meeting this guy on the street at a very well-known place in Toronto. We were supposed to go to a ball game. And he says to me on the phone, I'm like, well, how am I going to know it's you? And he said, oh, don't worry. I'll be the one wearing red pants. Hmm. Now this was in 1992. Red pants are kind of trendy now and some like some of my friends might be wearing red pants, but it's not too common. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't skip a beat when he said that. And that was just 
the beginning. So there was nothing unsafe about him. It was just like, uh, it just was not a good, uh, it was nothing I was looking for. <laughs> That's for sure. Got it. <laughs> um, so, so funny. But yeah, things are different. And I've certainly uh, had a lot of experience, not personally, I haven't made it to one high school reunion, but I've seen lots of pictures from my friends from like, not just my high school, but all kinds of high schools. And uh, women do seem to care more about their appearance. Yes, we do. We do care about our appearance. And I also think we tend to put ourselves down. I mean, all my girlfriends, oh, I've got to lose weight. And someone go, oh, if I'm going to go online, I have to do this and hate my thighs and all that. And, you know, guys, they seem to think that whatever they look like, they they want to get naked with a woman and get on with it. You know, I mean, I don't understand it. It's not appealing, but it's definitely something I saw. Uh, you know, I, I, unlike the Instagram or something, I put up something that said, dear men, please do not ask for a woman to have traits that you do not possess. As uh-huh. in, are you yourself fit, fun, loving, and under 50? Mm-hmm. What kind of a response did you get to that? I'm not too popular on Instagram, but not much. <laughs> But I, but a lot of women have said that, you know, yeah, that's true, that, you know, it's peculiar, all these men acting like they're these big prizes when they're clearly not. And a variety of us women who I think are prizes, a lot of my girlfriends really were um, feeling very put down by the whole process. Wow. So is that something that you thought you would be writing about? Well, I thought I'd still be married to my high school sweetheart. <laughs> but once I started to date... I felt like I I felt obligated to write about it because I wasn't alone in that. Um, Just like when I started, I wrote a little bit more about grief because I felt like people weren't capturing some of the loneliness I was feeling and some of the desperation. Some of the grief grief writing to me felt far too optimistic Mm -hmm. for what things really felt like when you're like, oh, my God, I'm alone for the rest of my life. When you expect to be partnered and you've been in a long relationship. Mm, Yeah. Wow. So what happened with your dating experience in the book? How did you how did you tell that story? I told it in a variety of chapters with flashbacks. Uh, di- different. I told it in different ways. Um, one of my earlier stories is one of my first dates after. Again, I'd been widowed after my high school sweetheart. I hadn't dated since I was seventeen. I go on a date with this gorgeous guy. He tells me his mom's thrilled. I'm the first Jewish girl he's ever dated. He looks like Alec Baldwin with lots of gym time. I mean, this is this is great. We go to a romantic dinner. We come home. We're sitting on my couch. We have wine. And then the first thing he says is, I need to tell you about my failed relationships. Oh, my God. And then there were several. Yeah, there were several. That was a whole night. That was, and, and, and you know, and then another date after that of, of failed, failed, terrible relationships. So. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is my first date after widowhood. I mean, I, as I said, I looked for signs and that sign to me said retreat, but I, <laughs> I kept going forward. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What's your favorite part of the book? Oh, my favorite part is actually the chapter where I write about the summer where my mom died. Tell me why. Because my I'm kind of a humorous writer. I mean, that's what I do. And I see humor and the absurdity in a lot of situations. Um, the book, it, despite being about grief, is funny. And that's where I think it distinguishes it from some other books that way. But 
going back to that place of being 10 years old and having my mom die and what it was like trying to make a new life with my dad um, really brought me back to a, a difficult place, but also made me really appreciate him. He's 92 now. Wow. So that was really meaningful to me to go back. And that part isn't as funny in it, remembering what it's like to be a child in that situation. Um, to me, that's the most moving part of the book, at least to me. Yeah, I'm getting a little uh, verklempt here myself. <laughs> yeah, I tried to read a piece of that. I've done a couple videos on because, again, I'm trying to build social media where I read pieces of the book. And I read a little bit of that first chapter and I was like, cry, get the end up like, OK, I don't want to put this video up. Oh, no, that's very emotional. And of course, I'm, you know, I lost parents as a child. So I totally uh, am very quiet as <laughs> you're telling <laughs> you're telling your story. Um, that's beautiful that you gave yourself the opportunity to explore that and revisit it and, and share the story. That's great. So where can you get the book? What's it called? Where can you find it? The book is called Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. Love it. Um, but it's also very much about finding yourself and creating a life for yourself at middle age. That That's more the conclusion of the book than it is about men. Uh, you can easily order the book on Amazon. I have a website where you can find it. And I have an author page on Facebook. Um, my So it's, I'm pretty easy to find. My website is thehungoverwidow.com. Now you have to say, why did you include that Ooh. title? The Hungover <laughs> Widow. Love it. <laughs> but I have a link on my website to go to indie bookstores. And it is, it has traditional distribution through an indie publisher. So you can go to your local bookstore and order it to support that bookstore. I know that's really important to people. The hungover. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I picked that for my blog because, well, when my husband died, I was drinking a lot of Manhattans. It was not pretty. <laughs> I mean, I uh, his death in some ways was, well, it was very difficult for me. And I was alone. So I was drinking the Manhattans and occasionally throwing the glasses at the fireplace. I have... Um, some Eastern European heritage there. <laughs> but I also felt that a lot of the stuff about widowhood felt very um, aspirational at a time yeah. when you don't feel aspirational. And I look online, there were fit widows, there were singing widows, there were recovering widows, there were widows running triathlons. And I felt way too messed up to do any of that. So, um, you know, I've got healthier habits later. I don't drink like that anymore. But at the time, I, I wanted to put something with Widow that felt really honest. Mm, I love I love your approach, Debbie. Like, it is so honest. It, you're just coming across as uh, really authentic. And oh, that I, I can't even imagine going through what you've been through. I've been through a bunch of other crap, but your crap is not something that I've dealt <laughs> with from your perspective. And yeah, you're really honest about it. And and with a sense of humor when appropriate and maybe sometimes when not, which is also fun. <laughs> True. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. You have, you have to read the book. It's, it has its moments that are maybe a little inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> All the better. Okay. So um, with your final message to women, midlife women, what do you think the most important thing is to think about at this age and stage? Well, for me, and I don't think this only applies to widowhood. Again, I'm a very cautious, risk-averse person. And for me, making change is taking little teeny steps forward. So my message is that you start with teeny steps 
and you can advance and make big changes. You know, I started writing uh, with one person again, but then I took classes and then I got a support group and then I had friends and then I got another degree and then there was a book, but it all happened slowly. You know, little steps. I didn't like my old house that much. I, I made some changes here. I made changes there. Again, very cautious. But last year I did move from my house of 27 years and I did wow. move in with a new partner and changes did happen that were big, but they start from just tiny steps. And that's what I want to tell people who feel stuck is just a little step forward and reward yourself. I love that. And that's why what I mentioned earlier about being on the right path, there are clues to help guide you, but it's impossible to expect to know and have it all wrapped up in a bow all of the steps and the whole plan and exactly what's going to happen because it's impossible to know. The only thing you can do is take that first step, is say yes to that first invitation to put on real pants, to, to say to, to say yes to, you know, be open enough to start meeting some new people and to submit that first draft for some critique, uh, to even apply to school. I mean, those were all really you know, they ended up with giant results, um, but they did start with little steps, looking for signs, being cautious, but knowing in your heart of hearts that you wanted to grow forward. That's what it really sounds like, that you weren't willing to stay stuck, but you appreciated that being stuck for a while was completely appropriate. It was. For me, it was. I mean, I wasn't ready to move. I didn't have the wherewithal. Um, I'd only moved twice in my life or, you know, uh, meeting, dating, you know, again, I'm cautious to have a new partner is what I wanted. But again, it took a lot of frogs mm -hmm. and toads. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, trying to get a community is hard. But once you start to do it, it's a lot easier, you know, yeah. so at first start with a, again, I, I probably wouldn't be doing Rotary Club dinners right now. That doesn't really resonate with me. But it was valuable to start getting out of the house. And then from there, I did find things I liked. Hiking groups, like great hiking groups, great friends in hiking groups, great community, fitness, all of it. It's it's all great. It's just a matter of starting with a few things you don't like maybe and seeing kind of what's there and then then moving forward. So good. And how did you meet your partner? Online. Did you? I did. Not J-Date. Okay, Cupid. Um, Very nice. Yeah, it happened. I, you know, I'd been dating a while and was had not gone on and off and was pretty pessimistic about it. But I got a an email one day on a site that said, are those vans with skulls on them? Because there was a picture where I was wearing these tennis shoes with skulls. Yeah, yeah, they are. And um, we emailed back and forth about that and dated for a while. And then it you know, came together. He was super, super supportive when I was getting the MFA. And that was amazing. Wow. You just never know. You never know what it's going to be that's the spark and you never know how long it's going to take and how many people you have to meet. And, you know, but what I love is that while you had that goal, you were really pursuing your passion. So you had a goal to meet somebody and you knew that you had to keep meeting people to find that someone, but you didn't put your life on hold. No, that wasn't going to happen. I did at first when I, I primarily ch channeled my energies into dating when I was about a year after being widowed, that was kind of, and that was kind of all the bandwidth I had. Mm. And that's where the book takes place. The book's taking place about a year and a half after widowhood during some worse of dating experiences. But I guess what I'd want to tell somebody now is that it all turned out for the good. 
So yeah, you never know. You just, what's frustrating with something like online dating is you kind of have to keep trying to get a large enough pool of people. Right. But, um, you know, most of them, you really want to toss back at the same time. Right. Right. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. And it's been a real pleasure to hear your story. And what I'm taking away from it is courage, curiosity, and, you know, a readiness to embrace having an exciting life. Am I right? You are right. You're (laughs) absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better. Well, that's good. (laughs) Thank you so much. Of course, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and your candidness. I really, really appreciate it. I wish you all the best. Thank you, Susie. This was a lot of fun. Okay, that's it for this episode. There's so much to take from Debbie's interview, right? I love how her true passion of writing can be traced back to her youth. That's so often the case. What you love to do when you were much younger is likely to give you clues about what will still bring you joy. It's so important to check in with your memories of that kind of stuff. And her advice about taking very small steps. I love that she emphasized this. You know, so many of us want everything all worked out so we can forge ahead with great certainty. And that is just not the case. It's not realistic. Not only is it impossible, but there's also the overwhelm that can keep you stuck and resistant to even starting. It's so cool to think about how advantageous it can be to take tiny steps. You don't have to think about this approach as being a problem or not the optimal way to grow forward. What a relief that can be. You can consider that it's the best way to proceed. Notice how much more confident you probably feel with that kind of thinking. So as you know, this podcast is really all about coaching you to be more intentional and to incorporate mindfulness into your life as a regular practice. It's really the key ingredient to regret-proofing your life. This is how you put you on your agenda. This is how you embrace becoming more responsible for your emotional well-being. This is how you get clarity again for what you actually want so you don't have regrets. And as you know, my focus as your midlife coach is to help you get unstuck, clear, and excited about your life again. Like I said, the path forward is to learn to think on purpose and take one tiny but thoughtful step at a time. So you got to ask yourself, are you ready to do this? Because if you are, I'm all in to help you do it. Seriously, if you're ready to change your life and learn the skills to unstick yourself with some masterful coaching, a top-notch curriculum, an infusion of creativity, and a warm, fun, and awesome community of like-minded women, let's talk about it. I would love to be able to help you get unstuck and be happier and more fulfilled than ever before. So email me your questions. And of course, go ahead and book your momentum call at www.womeninthemiddleacademy.com. For show notes and links, head over to www.susierosenstein.com and click the podcast tab and look for episode 286. And if you're interested in applying to be a guest on my new upcoming podcast, The Real Women in the Middle, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. So thanks so much for listening. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. I'm Susie Rosenstein, and I'll talk to you next week. 